It is another episode of the Nerds Report. I'm the music guy, CJ Plain. You know what we do here. We laugh. We have fun. We talk to cool and interesting people. And uh, we just act goofy, uh, kind of. So uh, over here today, joining us uh, via Zoom, as usual. Uh, you will hear them. You won't see them. But uh, we are going to cut up and have fun. Uh, is a singer-songwriter uh, that I found on a website. And um, his name is Ray (laughs) Castro Novo. And I already butchered it. So we're going to start with his introduction from him. He's going to give you a little bit of background on himself. And then uh, we're going to get into the uh, nitty gritty of the chaos that we call a podcast. (laughs) How are you today? Good. How you doing, CJ? I am amazing, man. The day started off on a completely insane note but it turned around so um yeah you know you uh never want to start your day off with the death of a family member but uh yep. fortunately we did uh sorry to hear that yeah it's you know and um got out of bed due to that and our mini fridge got set into frost mode somehow so it i had 347 gallons of water on my carpet that i stepped in in the dark and, you know, I was like, all right, this sucks. And then I tried taking it apart to fix the defrosting, and I broke the the console thing on it. And I was like, all right, like, I'm going to need bail money before this day is out because I still got to deal with friend of the court and Social Security Administration. So, right, right. <laughs> But it turned around, and I'm laughing. So um, here we are. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, give everyone a background on you, like, uh, you know, Kind of where you started and where you're at now, and because uh, it's a cool story, man. It's uh, sort of a it's a comeback story if there ever was one. So yeah. So I grew up in the Canarsie section of Brooklyn. So grew up there, did my thing, you know, lived in the streets of Brooklyn, nice. met some really genuine guys, and kept on going. And we had a uh, trio. We played music in all the clubs in Manhattan, from the Mud Club and CBGBs and Kenny Castaways and the Beacon Theater. And there there was three of us. And we went on, it was Ray, me, Tom, and Mike. And we were the Ray Tomics. So we played everywhere. And then one day we get the attention from a major record label. So the record major, the, uh, the major record label says, okay, I want you to go to this recording studio Excuse me. in Manhattan called the Hit Factory. And the Hit Factory wow. back then, if you're in a Hit Factory, yep. one of the most prestigious recording studios in the world. Tony so Bongiovi. Yeah. So I hit it off <laughs> with the owner, Eddie Germano. Okay. And we then, you know, carried on. Everything was getting all set. And then I went home and I, you know, as a... Italian-born Brooklyn. We had kids real young. We got married real young. And I had a pregnant wife who told me, you know what? If you go down that road, you can forget this road. I need you around me. I need you to be here. So I kind of had to let them know I'm putting it on hold. I let Eddie Germano know I'm putting it on hold. And Eddie was a regular street guy himself. So Eddie Germano, the owner of the Hit Factory, used to drive a uh, concrete truck and sing in lounges. And then what he decided to do is he loved music so much, he started the Hit Factory. And meanwhile, I had one of the best recording studios in the world. Yeah. So I carry on. 
I bring up my kids. I go and, uh, you know, I create a real successful construction company. I own, I do a lot of big buildings in Manhattan. Nice. I carry on. So then I switch gears and I move my business out east. I'm on the east end of Long Island. You've heard of the Hamptons? Yep. So we're in, a, we're in a town in the fall called Riverhead. So I buy this building from an old fraternity that was shutting down called the Independent Order of Odd Fellas. I don't know if anyone heard of them, but... <laughs> It's a spinoff of the Mason's Lodge in the 1700s. Okay. So I come up to the third floor where I am now sitting, and I see it's a ballroom. I got dance floors and disco lights. I bought all their furniture to where they had their stations. And I told my daughter about six years ago, who's involved in my company, I said, Cassandra, I'm going to try to get as good as I was, and I'm going to reach out to everybody again and see what happens. So fast forward. I go and I uh, work up here. I said, I'm not going to rent this dirt floor. I'm going to keep it for me in a rehearsal studio. So I go and I work up here and I work up here. So about two years ago, I reach out to uh, the record company again, which I'm not going to say their names. It's a big record company. And I reach out to the hit factory. And the record company welcomes me in with open arms. And then I remembered that they own 75% of you. And you only own 25%. So I decided, you know what? I don't need their money anymore. Yep. So I started my own record company called DayQuest Records. And I'm the first guy I'm signing up to see how it all works and the process so I could use it and help other musicians. So then I go back to the hit factory. And I found out that Eddie Germano, Germano had passed away about seven years ago yep. because he had some lap band surgery on his stomach and then went to undo it. He got an infection yep. and he passed away. So I had information, his card, his paperwork that he gave me, CJ, probably 30 years ago. Right. I then write, I find out his son, Troy Germano, is running the hit factory. Okay. So I go and I write to Troy and I show him the pictures of what his father wrote me, writing me, and you ever want to come back? And Troy welcomed me with open arms. Nice. So that would then we record the first album there that got released that you probably heard about. It got released about six, eight months ago. And we're getting a lot of momentum now from yeah. here to the UK to Belgium throughout the US. And we kind of mm. held off on playing live shows to last summer because this whole COVID stuff. And we didn't know how, what to do, how to control it. So now we're in about two or three weeks, we're releasing the first half of the second album. So our PR, uh, we have an international PR company out. You probably know Beatrice. Mm hmm. They, we said, she says, I need material. So we decided instead of doing the whole 10, we'll do part A, we'll do five. We're going to release them in about a, probably three weeks. Mm -hmm. And now we're into the studio again on the 27th to record the next five. Nice. So here we are now. We're pushing forward. And now we're starting to get attention from some real high profile managers, which I can't really mention their names now, but I got a seven. Uh, Grammy award-winning manager, tour manager that wants to take us on. So we're probably going to start hitting the road right around May, June. And nice. here we are. I've told my construction company, my daughter, my son's a construction litigation attorney. Nice. He's coming to work, he's coming to work with his sister so I can get out of here and I can go down that musical journey. So, nice. And, and we started streetwise. So I put together a hand-select crew of musicians. These guys, I have Chubby Checkers, bass player, Joe Martinez, who's re he's really good. And he he toured the world with Chubby Checker and Irina Cara. 
I got sax players. I got some Broadway girls because, you know, COVID was restricting Broadway, who are our backup singers, amazing girls. I got a couple of sax players from the city, and I got another guitarist that plays with me. And streetwise, well, here we are. Nice. I The experience, there's two things that you said that definitely makes sense now thinking about it. One is having spent time at the Hit Factory because thinking about the music on the CD, it absolutely has that sound and style. Um, Two, the experience in the music itself and songwriting shows as well. Um, Record-wise, there's a lot of different styles in this, but the one thing that I noticed all the way through it, it was so consistent, is this record just kind of screams New York. Like, (laughs) I mean, it screams New York without actually saying New York per se. Like, it has all of the... You know, you New York music has all of these different flares, all of these different styles, all of these different things it's famous for. And it's kind of like there's a little bit of it all through it. Uh, Dream Girl just has that total Frankie Valley type of vibe to it. Um, you know, you got the Asbury Jukes type of style in there. You've got the, you know, just the... There's so many different things that I hear to me that just demonstrate that you are New York through and through. You know, um, like if yeah. like if I heard this record and didn't know you, didn't have a bio, anything like that, and I heard this record, it would automatically make me think you were from New York. You know, right. um, from the hot. Yeah, like it just like there's nothing about this. That says, okay, they might be from Detroit or they might be from Chicago or L.A. This is a New York record. Like, this is just a complete New York record to me. And that's a good thing. Like I said, New York has so much great music and so much flair. And um, a lot of my favorite musicians are either from New York or uh, ended up in New York. (laughs) Um, So, you know, uh, my favorite hip-hop artist is from uh, Coney Island. Um, so, uh, you probably heard his stuff a million times. He's the one who created the whole bing bong, uh, thing on TikTok and all that. Um, Nems, I, I love Nems cause he's just, he, again, he's New York through and through. He's, he's a complete trash talk, trash talker. Um, but he just has such a New York hip hop thing about him that he's so authentic. Like when you think New York hip hop, it's just. He's so old school about it, even though he's a younger guy and he's new. Um, he could have easily been there in the beginning with those guys. But um, this record, man, is just, like I said, it's a really great record. And I love it to death. Like, you don't hear you don't hear really good records like this. Just, I don't want to call it old school because it, it seems disingenuous to me, but it has that kind of old school vibe to it. You know what I'm saying? Like I do. So that's how we started out. So we call it, we're on a, we we, we go by the name streetwise Mm -hmm. because you know, streetwise is one thing, but we were wise enough to learn from some of the legends. Yeah. So we, we go back as far as Louis Armstrong. We listened to how the three Kings, BB King, Freddie King, Albert King, 
We got that kind of, and then we flow into Motown, and then yeah. the Rolling Stones, and then you get Eric Clapton. So when we're asked, and I'm asked, like, what kind of genre is it? So I can't say, I really thought deep, CJ, and I said, I can't come up with a genre, yeah. so I'm going to make up my own. We got a little Motown flavor somewhere, and yeah. shake it. We got a little blues flavor somewhere else. Then we got a little Frankie Valley and 50s yeah. flavor somewhere else. Yeah. So I said, you know what I'm going to call it? I'm going to start my own genre. I'm going to call it music stew. Nice. I got a stew of all these genres. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I know you probably wouldn't tell it from looking at me just as a person, but I'm a massive doo fan. Um, yeah, I, right. I grew up listening to Southern rock with my dad. My dad has been a truck driver for 52 years. Um, so I grew up on Southern rock, Bob Seger, that kind of stuff. A lot of Detroit yeah. stuff being from Michigan. Um, but also, you know, punk, when punk came along, I spent a lot of time in New York because that was where punk was. And CBGB's was one of my favorite yeah, places. Right. Um, seeing all of the great bands and, uh, you know, and just hanging out in the Belfry and different places and, you know, and then it was hair metal. But during all of that time, the one type of music that I never listened to around people, but I always was obsessed with was doo-wop. Growing up, my favorite TV show was Shana Nasho. Um, yeah, that was music. Yeah, because cause Bowser, like, how could you not? love Bowser like you know that was I mean he was more than just a character but the whole like I miss shows like that I miss shows like you know the 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 shows like Shana Na and in uh Hee Haw and shows that were music but they were comedy they were family friendly they were just really fun to watch you know and they had so much and I, I told someone a while back, I said, you know, with all the retro stuff being popular again, Hollywood is really missing the boat on creating a show of that style that could showcase some of the fun actors, but also bring in newer groups that they can showcase more than just what the labels push, you know, because there's so many great bands like you guys and all right. that would just, you know, die for the chance to get a broader exposure in a setting that is conducive to them more than just, you know, run-of-the-mill stuff. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously, it's obvious there's still a place for it because you have places like Branson and, and Dollywood that still have musical review stuff that's super popular. You know, um, so I don't know. I just, like I said, I think Hollywood's missing the boat on a chance to really do something like like that. Like, well, I, I think it's going to come because you know how history repeats itself. Yeah, and we are getting the feel now, and also with Beatrice and our PR people, they're seeing that that fifty style. Yeah, made today. It's starting to regain momentum again. Yeah. And it's starting because that's music. You could have yeah. any different genre built into that style of music. Yeah. Well, it's where it all started. I mean, it just, you know, people don't realize how good 
that genre was. Just not on the aspect of the songs, but the musicians that were in the background that a lot of people didn't learn about, the actual talent it took to perform those songs, uh, the longevity of them. You know, you Frankie is uh, Frankie is eighty plus years old and is still out here <laughs> selling out shows and sounding amazing for a guy that's eighty plus years old who really probably has no business at his age being out doing what he does. But you know, I guess if it gets in your blood, you do what you love. You know, and yeah, I'm back. Which way? Give it a go, and you know. The other thing is that, so the music, sometimes the music today, these guitarists and these other musicians, they noodle around and play all yeah. these notes and it's just noisy nonsense, you know? Yeah. Just like the Three Kings said, it's not how many notes you play, it's the mother effort behind the yeah. note. Yeah. Keep it simple, make it sing, make it yep. passionate, make it charismatic. Right, you can play a riff with three notes and for a whole session and just make them all sound special. Not all this, everywhere. No, that's that's so true, because when I started my first band, it was during that time Metallica and ACDC were really popular. And we didn't have a guitar player. And we brought all of these kids in, all of these... Everyone everyone could play Metallica. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, yeah. Everyone could play ACDC. Everyone could play Judas Priest. But they were like robots. Judas Priest. You know, right, there was yeah. there was no emotion in it. They were just, they were hitting all of the notes, but kind of like James Hetfield, they just stand there and, you know, and it's like, can you play anything with passion, emotion? And people are like, what do you want to play? Can you play Gary Moore? Gary Moore is my favorite guitar player yeah. of all time. Can you play yeah. Gary Moore? And they would play Gary Moore and it just sounded lifeless. And it's like, how can you play Gary Moore and sound lifeless? It's, but I was almost at the point of giving up. And I was in a foster home, and I had a court hearing. So I got picked up to go to the court hearing, and the worker said, we have to make one stop along the way. So she stops at this house to pick up this other foster kid. And I'm sitting in the car with the window down, and I hear this guitar. And they're just playing their ass off. Ah, and yeah. I jump out of the car. I'm running through yards, looking over fences to that? find where this is. And I about four houses down, I get there, and there's this fence that's taller than me. And I jump up on the fence, and I pull my body up, and I'm kind of laying over it with my stomach. And I see this little Native American kid sitting on a picnic table with an Ibanez bigger than him. He's playing Victims of the Future by Gary Moore. Just playing the shit out of it. And That's I watched him for a minute. I watched him for a minute and I was like, hey. He's like, what? I was like, are you in a band? And he's like, no. I was like, hey, you want to be in a band? <laughs> <laughs> and he ended up being a guitar player. And, you know, it was literally, I was so frustrated for that very reason. Like, there were so many yeah. people that could play the notes flawlessly, but there was no emotion behind it. There was no style. There was no flair right. to it. And then... Jamie walked in and just, you know, the kid could play more in 10 notes than all of these other ones could play, you know. Exactly, right. You know, and I asked him, I said, where'd you learn to play? And he's like, well, I taught myself. And I was like, there's no way you're that good if you taught yourself. He's like, well, 
my dad died. Uh, he was adopted. He had grown up on the reservation in Arizona. And his yeah. dad had left him this huge record collection of old 60s and 70s records. There you go. So he learned by playing blues and doo-wop and yep. the the right stuff guys. like that. So I was like, okay, that makes sense that you learned playing that stuff as opposed to modern rock stuff because it showed in his style. And um, one of the first shows we ever played, even though we were this really loud metal band, we got to open for Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. And absolutely terrified because, you know, Jerry Lee is pretty well known for being um, obstinate. At best, almost days. <laughs> yeah. So we're playing along, and we get to our last song, and we're playing. And I look over, and Jerry Lee Lewis is standing on the side of the stage watching us. And my first thought is, shit, that can't be good. Jerry Lee Lewis come off the bus to watch us. So we finish, and I try to sneak off stage, and Jerry steps in front of me and sticks his hand out. So I shake his hand, and he's... What? He, he shakes my hand and he says, his exact words were, you know, for a bunch of kids, you don't actually suck. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take that because from you, that's probably as close to a compliment as you're ever going to get. Yep, that's all right. So we got off stage and let him have it. And I went home happy that day. Like, all right, you know, I've done something. I've received a compliment from Jerry Lee Lewis. You can't do much better than that, I think, at 17 right. years old, you know, so... Um, that's good stuff. Yeah. So t tell us more about like you got into construction, man, and, and building things. And that's, that's crazy because it's such a cutthroat business and it's so crazy with all of the, and then to do it in New York where again, where it's like 10 times the scale, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I learned firsthand. So my father's from Sicily. Okay. So you he know. came over. He came over with ten of the finest bricklayers from Sicily. They were artists. So yeah. I grew up that way, breaking my ass on a scaffold. What is bricklayers? Learning the right way. Yeah. So we got and and listen and growing up in Canarsie, there's a little place that. Canarsie has some history to it. And if, if you go and you check out this one little place called the Gemini Lounge, it's a real unique place. And you'll see why we're able to do things in Manhattan and you're able to work in that environment because <laughs> you got some friends that still exist. Yeah. So it is difficult. And, you know, I got through the whole process I worked for a company. I had a guy that was my mentor. He taught me what he wanted to do. And then about 25, I'm in business 25 years. 25 years ago, I said, let me give it a shot. So, you know, it takes time to get the money. But you're right. It's, it's a cutthroat business. Yeah. But when you get past the plateau and yeah. people see that you're delivering quality, they're yeah. willing to spend a little bit more because working in that environment, one thing goes wrong. It could be devastating financially, yeah. taking the time. I mean, I'm digging holes in Manhattan 30 feet down. Yeah. I got train stations in front of me. I got buildings all around me. The rules and regulations are just through the roof. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, because of that, CJ, I learned that I handle this music as a business as well. Yeah. 
I got responsible guys. We're responsible. We have rehearsal time. We do our work and we put our time in to create what we're trying to put out to the world as quality music. Yeah. I, I got into painting in 2001, uh, strictly by chance. Um, and I was painting a fence and my boss who lived in the apartment complex we were managing drove by in his work van and he stopped and he's like, Hey, he's like, do you paint? And I thought I painted. Yeah, I paint, you know, I've painted a bunch of stuff. Um, Mark ended up, he was born and raised in Chicago, learned painting much like you learned bricklaying old school guys that were from Italy. And I discovered real quick that I don't know a damn thing about painting. (laughs) I thought I knew how to paint and Mark showed me that. No, son, you really don't know a damn thing about painting. Um, But I learned and, you know, I got pretty good at it and it was fun because Mark was a character and, you know, he had all the great old stories about coming from the Italian family. His, his last name was Cuneo. Um, so, you know, he come from the, the Cuneo clan or the dynasty, whatever you want to call it, uh, in Chicago. So a lot of his people were well connected and knew people who knew people and, and junk like that. Uh, and I always yeah. thought he was joking about it, you know. But his sister come down from Chicago one time, and she, we went somewhere to get something, and they blew her off. Essentially, didn't take her seriously, and she told him, "She's like, I'll make one phone call, and I'll guarantee I get what I want." And it's like whatever. And she made a phone call, and that manager come back and apologized, and yeah. was like. Okay, then. Uh, <laughs> memo number one, don't piss off Mark's sister. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Chicago has a pretty strict construction environment as well. Yeah, it was just, it was crazy. Like, it was, I, I asked Mark, I was like, if you come from Chicago from them people, how did you end up in Little Rock Lake? Yeah. You know, of all the places you think you'd end up in New York or L.A. or something, but they all ended yep. up in Little Rock somehow and. Um, you know, but it was, it was fun learning from him, you know, cause yeah. Mark knew yeah. people and he knew how to do it. And it was the same kind of thing. You did yeah. it, you did it and you did it right. And Mark took no you excuses. Right. Um, you know, and he definitely was the type that if you made a mistake, he would make you go back and do it again. You know, start over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Seriously. Our right? Yeah, like you you're gonna make me do this again. Like it's only one small little spot. You can't fix one small little spot. You gotta fix the whole thing. You gotta fix the whole thing. And I was like, ah, oh, it was so aggravating at times, but um you learn that way, you know, like yeah. muscle memory, I guess, is um in yeah. I don't know, man, it just it, it's so interesting. Like I love building stuff. Um, so I'm fascinated with buildings being built and even when they take buildings down, um, like the demolition of it, um, the, the way that they can take these buildings down essentially and it be between two other buildings and essentially not even touch the other buildings, you know, to me, that's just pure mastery of your craft. Like how do you make this entire massive building just perfectly fall into itself and not touch anything around it you know 
And yeah. to me, that's so incredible. And again, you know, they like in Vegas where they'll knock them down and then they'll just build them again, you know, and it's like. Just keep going vertical, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I wish I had that craft or that, you know, that knowledge to do that because um, I love architecture and I love buildings, especially old buildings. And um, that was one of the things I loved about being in New York is seeing some of the old churches that were there and some of the oh, fascinating. buildings that were, you know, so old and just think like, God, what did they do to build this without the modern con- construction machinery we had, you know, right. and they did it in a time where everything was done by hand. You know, it was, yep. the, the, your, your, your mind kind of boggles at it. Like, man, it's like wow. the, the work and the effort and the brain brain trust, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, that goes into creating something right. like so that. My, this, my last one I'm finishing out. It's funny you say that. So we went, about a year ago, we went through this whole pre-qualification process. There were seven of us, and I got awarded the project. Not because I was the cheapest guy, because I had the most amount of knowledge. I give them right. a lot of credit for deciding this. So we right now, we're coming to the tail end of building in Old Westbury, New York, one of the most beautiful chapels. Oh, nice. And it has a look that it was built in the late 1700s with all this limestone and the steeples and there's 10 mausoleums around it. I'll, tell you, I'll get your email. I'll show you some of the pictures because last oh, week we just made it to some of the news because they called it the rising of the steeples because the steeples went up. And I had to find, the reason I got the job was because my history with my father's Sicilian bricklayers. And I knew that my competition, those bricklayers, I qualified them. I said, they're not qualified to do this. So I had to get more of an expensive guy. And he, I know him for a while, had to import 50 Italian stone setters from Italy. Because those were the only ones that knew how to do this. Yeah, yeah. And the detail of it, CJ, and the steeples. I mean, it yeah. came out. And the arched Gothic windows. I mean, it came out magnificent. And I lived in it. I said, you know what? If I'm going to carry on, this is what I like to do for my yeah. last one as I enter in my music world. Nice. Um, I Completely off. Um, so the new record you're working on. You're doing five and five, um, essentially EPs, which is very smart because I definitely, you know, know that EPs tend to do much better sale wise than regular records for some reason. I don't know why, but, um, what are some of the new songs and ideas from it? You know what I mean? Is it, is it kind of in the same vein or did we, you know experiment a little more and get even crazier. <laughs> You're starting to know me a little bit already, CJ. <laughs> so we got the next five that are coming out. So one is called Hold On. So Hold On starts out a little bit, um, let's say, not so happy, but ends up happy. So it's about someone who finds himself standing in the rain and he doesn't know what he's doing. The second verse is, he gets home, the lights are out, the room is dark, there's silence everywhere, he has all these memories. And the last verse is, when he woke up with the sun in his eyes, he saw a lion by his side, he realized it was just a dream, a crazy dream, is that how it seems? 
So that's Hold On. So we got two kind of little love songs. We have one fun song, and we have two rock and roll songs that get a little bit aggressive. So on one of the rock and roll songs, we have a song called 440. And it starts out that we, any of you girls out there like to drive fast cars? Well, we knew a girl that used to like to drive a Charger RT with a 440 engine. So it's called 440, and it has some type of, it has that little rock and rolly, but it has a little sexual feel to it, too, that, you know what, I want to get in your car, and I want to turn you on. I want to drive you wild, and she's driving it, too. So that's 440. Nice. Then we have a song called Marinara Maddie. So how did I come up with Marinara Maddie? So I used to like a song way back when by, I think it was... Willie Joe White called Poke Salad Annie. So I, I think that sounds I have, right. So growing up in the, an Italian neighborhood, the Italian mothers don't teach the men how to cook. They're supposed to go out and work, and they teach the girls how to cook. So my, I had a younger sister, Madalena, and she passed away at a young age. She's always with me. So her name was Madalena, and she used to make the best marinara sauce in Brooklyn. And she'd have all these people gather around, and she would love feeding her marinara sauce. So I wrote this song called Marinara Maddie. And it starts out, there's a nice little riff in the beginning. And then I mentioned, I I do a little talk and spiel. I don't know how many people have been to that town called Brooklyn, but in Brooklyn, they don't have any farms. They have just backyard gardens. And we knew this girl at the end of the road who made the best marinara sauce time, and her name was Marinara Maddie. And it starts out like way downtown in New York City, right where the boroughs meet. There's a girl who's uh, who feeds the world, and you know she's kind of sweet. Her name is Marinara Maddie. And then on the second verse, it tells how she's making the sauce, and on the last verse, it tells how she's feeding everybody. But it's got some rock and roll riffs to it. We have a couple of little stylish, like Jimi Hendrix-type flavor riffs throughout the whole thing. And then there's Shadows, which is a real big 50s comeback. It's shadows in the sky. It's a it's a, a, a kind of a love song that you know. Come hold me close. Put your body next to mine. When I kiss your lips, chills run up and down my spine. Nice. Uh, yep. And then there's the last one, the last of the five, called four, uh, called double take. So double take is about everybody takes a double take. CJ, you see something you like, you take a double take. This is the fun song. You see something you don't like, you take a double take. But be real careful of those triple takes. So it's called double take. It starts out, you see, I took a double take. I saw this girl, everything worked out. The second verse is, we found out, you know, that our names were the same. The last verse is, before you know, we had wedding bells. We then had twins, and they doubled themselves. <laughs> double take. So nice. that's the fun song. Nice. I... I love Italian food. I was a part owner in an Italian restaurant in um, Pennsylvania at one point. I walked into it completely by chance. I was kind of more of a silent partner than anything, but I did work in a restaurant on occasion. And um, I was a partner until (laughs) I always worked back at the house. Uh, I make lasagna. I'm 
pretty Hi. famous among my friends for being the guy who makes the best lasagna. Um, and I was making lasagna and one of the guys like, I got to go to the bank. Can you wash the front of the house? Great. I went up front, was just hanging out, kind of trying to stay out of the way. Um, cause I didn't really know Jack all about running the front of the house. <laughs> um, this guy comes in and he's about six foot three. He's about 240 pounds. He's wearing a, a suit. And, uh, I was like, okay. And he's like, you got a banquet room. And I was like, yeah. He's like, we need to book your banquet room. And I was like, okay, great. So I get the book out and I set it down and I was like, um, can I get your name to reserve the banquet? And he kind of looks at me and he gives me this look and he's like, yeah. He's like, it's a New Jersey Trash Association. <laughs> the mob. <laughs> so uh, they show up that night and there's like 50 of them and they all look like Tony Soprano. Yeah. And I go into the kitchen and I gather the kitchen crew up and I was like, look, this may be a joke. It's maybe a, not a joke. I don't know. Casually walk out there, look at that group in the back, and whatever you do, don't fuck up the food. <laughs> he, was, he was like, Whoa, why? So my buddy, he goes out there and he comes back and he's like, okay, don't fuck up the cannoli. <laughs> <What's> <laughs> like, the cannoli. You know, and I go out back and there's like 12 limousines behind the restaurant lined up like black limousines. Yeah. And I was like, the fuck did these guys end up like in this podunk ass part of Pennsylvania? Like we're nowhere That's near Philly or anything. And the only thing I could think of is they must've been in Pittsburgh. Cause we were a little North of Pittsburgh. Um, but we were nowhere near Philly and we weren't near any city that would have had those type of guys. Um, no, super nice guys. Like the waitresses loved them because when they left, they left almost like a thousand bucks worth of tips for the waitresses. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they obviously were well connected because you're not just going to throw a thousand bucks around if you're not well connected. Um, but it was this is a funny story, and I loved that, and I love Italian food, and um, you know, it's the best food in the world. I'm not Italian, but I wish I was. Just for that sole purpose, because um, all my favorite food, um, you you always you always hear stories about you know what's the worst way to die. I always tell people the worst way for me to die would be to be told I was gluten intolerant. <laughs> Why? If you ever come to me and say you can no longer eat pasta, I... just shoot me, okay? Like. Life uh, isn't worth living if you can't have lasagna and tortellini and you know linguine like linguine right. yeah you like down to the angel here that's what I'm saying like right. that's I could I couldn't imagine living life not being oh well, just eat the gluten free oh I'm gonna pretend you didn't even say that like right. like. That isn't pasta. If it doesn't have eggs and flour, that's not pasta. I don't know what the hell it's called, but it's not pasta. Okay, like, like if you if you go to an old Italian grandmother 
and ask her to make you some pasta and tell her she can't use eggs or flour in it, she's going to beat you to death with that rolling pin. That's what's going to happen, okay? (laughs) It is going to look like a mafia murder. (laughs) (laughs) Some little old Italian lady. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite. There's a YouTube channel, and I don't know the name of it, but it's these old, these four older Italian, kind of like the the mom from Golden Girls, the Sophia type. And uh, the whole channel is them trying different foods. And one of the things, they brought in Olive Garden and had these women taste Olive Garden. And they just were so vicious, you know. And, well, what is it? And they told her, it's it's tortellini. And the crap, no, no, honey, that's not tortellini. No, no. (laughs) So she was just, she's picking at it with a fork, and she's just tearing it apart, you know. And she's like, like, follow me. I'll show you how to make tortellini. She's speaking in Italian, you know. And and I just, I laugh at the channel because these, these women are so, you can tell they're so full of knowledge. Like, yeah. you know, they're the... They can cook. Yeah, but it's more than just the cooking. You can tell, like, these are the women who... These are the women who raised multiple kids. They kept their houses in check. They kept their husbands in check. And even though they may look old and frail, they were the type that if you cross them, they oh. would just, you know, make you wish you were never born. <laughs> My mother would be arrested today. Yeah. Oh, so we many. We learned that we caught some real beatings. Yeah. People don't understand. Like, they don't you know, that's what I'm saying. I'm not Italian, but I just, everything about it. I mean, I know you see it depicted in movies and in so many different ways. Um, many of it, which is probably blown out of proportion and glorified yeah. and whatnot. But. You know, there's just so many great depictions as well. Um, you know, and it's crazy, like the the food and the culture and so many things. And um, my one of my dreams is to go to Italy and actually get to see it firsthand. And because uh, they hear all the stories from Mark about going over there, and that's where he learned to paint and do frescoes and and uh, Venetian plaster and all that, learning it firsthand in Italy, and my love of architecture, I could only imagine that as amazing as New York is, Italy is probably, you know, a thousand times yeah. more. <laughs> I, I haven't been there either. I was try I was trying to go a couple of years ago, but then this whole COVID thing shut it yeah. down. So we're thinking about going probably in the next year or so. Awesome. I, I mean, the architecture is just fascinating. Yeah. I definitely would love to see pictures of the, of the church you're working on. Cause I, you know, it's, I don't know. I just, I'm so, like I said, it, 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 it gives you a new perspective, not yeah. just about life, but about how small as a, as a person, it gives you perspective and how small you are in the grand scheme of things and right. the size yeah. and scale, you know, like, Okay, I'm this one person. I'm standing here looking at this cathedral that is two blocks long and and you know hundreds of feet high. And right, yeah. The context of how this thing was built, how many men it took, the manpower, right. the thought process, you know. And it's you're like you're just one 
tiny speck in this grand cosmic scheme of everything, you know, and um, it's so crazy. Um, it's just something about these houses of worship that you just stand there. It's like you're in an aura when you're looking at them. It's like, oh, my goodness. This, and it's just not the churches themselves. It's there's I, I've come across places. There was a place in the, in the Belfry, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was this old bar. And it had been there for like 120 years, 130 years. It was this old yeah. Irish bar. You know, and to think like, okay, this bar has been here since the Civil War, you know, continuously operating. And to think back, okay, what was this place like back in 1880 or 1870 when it opened to continuously run for that many years and not be shoved out of the way by progress, not be not to close or to go out of business or anything like that, but just to continuously run, you know, and to be passed down generation to generation to generation. Um, you know, the one, the, the, the grit and determination, the family history of this family that owned it continually. And, you know, the work and the sweat that went into operating it from one generation to the next and the stories that that place could probably tell, you know, being passed from, you know, grandpa to dad, to son, to uncle, to, you know, in the, the, the nights of drinking in there and the, and the graduation parties and God knows what else. Right. Some history. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a really, uh, if these walls could talk, type of, you know, I kind of sat at a table in the back for a few minutes and just looking at the place thinking like, you know, you could, you could sit at this table, man, you could just imagine some crazy books, stories coming out of this place. Like just like, even if you don't know the family, you don't know the actual history, just looking at the place, the smells of it and the look of it and the stuff that's on the wall, you could sit here and write. multiple great books um probably whatever you thought of happened oh yeah because that's how many more right yeah yeah and more because a place doesn't survive for 130 140 years like that without something happening i mean i'm sure the characters that probably came through those doors um it's the belfry so obviously you know the just the history of the place itself, the people that probably came through the doors of that place over the years yeah. at some point. Um, you know, it, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. Like it, anyways, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's overwhelming. Now, I, um, a lot of people met each other. A lot of friends, yeah, were made, just, a lot of history, a lot of, you know, loud rowdiness, anything you can imagine. Yeah. in. Uh, where do they find, where do they find your music? Because I mean, coming kind of full circle back to it again, uh, the the record is the the first record. It's called Crossing Bridges. Uh, yeah, and, and mentioned that. Uh, but again, much like we're talking about, this is this is a record of stories. Like he was describing the new songs. These are 
you know, this is music about people and about living and experience and and seeing it firsthand. It isn't just writing songs for the sake of writing songs, so to speak. It's there's that again, that New York thing of you know, bleeding into the songs, your experience and your loves and your losses and um like so many great artists have. Um yeah, that's their stories from real life happenings. That's how it got all created, you know, from yeah. Shake It, it's like a dance song, to a better place. Like it's put, <clears throat> put out your hand and reach for another. It doesn't matter gender, race, creed, or color. All yeah. you got to do is stick together. You can make this world a better place. Yeah. So you can find the music on any music streaming platform. Even from YouTube to Spotify to Apple Music. And there's also our Instagram you can follow it. You can go back and see the whole history of how we started and some, you know, some photographs and some history at Streetwise NYC. And then our Facebook is just Streetwise and the website is streetwiseny.com. But I, <clears throat> I can give you my construction email. So if you email me, I'm going to send you some pictures of this church. Nice. And you'll look and you'll see how everything is... It's it's pretty it's pretty spectacular to be that you know I told my so my daughter my my daughter's an accountant she's been with me for ten years nice. she's running this bu- she's running this business like she's scary sometimes because <laughs> she's like my boss and they always are old, right and then our older brother is a construction litigation attorney nice so he's coming to work with her in a couple of months so that gives me the opportunity to go and put go on tour and just share what I wanted to start out doing. I couldn't It's just make people happy with the music. Nice. Um, one of the last things I want to ask, cause I, I see it sitting there and it's so unique looking. I got to ask about that guitar behind you, the green one. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's so unique looking like, what kind of guitar is that? And so uh, it's like, you know what the other two are, I'm sure. I said, yeah. the other, the, other, the blue one is a, Les Paul, I had that custom made for me, and then I have a Telecaster. But the green one I had made in England. That's another custom one. I call it my 1957 Ballad. That's what I play 440. Yeah. So so it's an it's an Eastwood. Okay. And it's and it's custom made in England, but it has all these double coil humbucker pickups in it, and then in the front there's a single coil pickup in it, so you can get that. Oh, you can. It's kind of versatile. I get both the sounds. Yeah. It it kind of reminds me of uh, let me know who he is. There's a guitar player named Michelangelo Batio, um, and he has a couple guitars that are kind of unique like that. That have the kind of sharp edges and and whatnot. And his are all custom made as well. Um, yeah, I don't know the company that makes them, but um, his are all uh, a, a lot of his. Um, they use like carbon fiber. And different things to make his. And they have this really unique tone and sound. Because um, he's one of these guys like Steve Vai that, um, you know, Michael plays like 150,000 notes a, a minute. Um, and it's crazy. Like, he plays super fast, but he plays with a ton of emotion. Um, that may right. He stops it, gives it space, and gives it some you know, character. Yeah. Like, like he, took, he took Dream On by Aerosmith, and he turned it into the Shred song. But he did it without losing any of the emotion of the That's actual that. song itself. And I was like, how did you add, like, this 
Melmstein Steve Vai, you know, thing to the song without losing the song in itself. And, you know, you just, you got to understand that I'm still a fan of the music and I, it was a, it's, it's a tribute to, to it, yeah. but it's my own interpretation of it. And I was like, and he's so, he's such an awesome guy. And, um, one of the funnest interviews I've ever done. Like it just, he's so knowledgeable about guitars. I was felt like a complete idiot because he's talking about guitars and I'm not a guitar player. I don't know the first thing about all of this technical talk when it comes to guitars. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I felt bad because I didn't know any of that stuff he's talking about. Um, but like I said, it's, it's really unique looking and I, and I love the look of it. So, oh yeah, um, thank you. Um, yep. This is Roy Castro Novo. Uh, his band is called Streetwise. Um, the first CD uh, is Crossing Bridges. Uh, it is really great music. Just feel good music without. It's music without pretenses. It's music without politics. It's music without all of the. Without all of the bad stuff of society. This is just old school right. music that you listen to and you just feel good about. You know, this is this is the way music was meant to be played, truthfully. Like, I don't know any other way to put it. It's just, the world needs more music like this. Like, yeah, thank you, CJ. Um, thank so, you. It's the second album, so there's the first one is Crossing Bridges. The second one is called The Other Side. Okay. So, <clears throat> that's a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge on the first mm-hmm. cover. And when the other side is, you went over the Brooklyn Bridge, and you're looking back, and you're on the other side, and you're looking back at the Brooklyn Bridge. Nice. That was one of the scariest. I don't like bridges. So going over the Brooklyn Bridge was really kind of crazy for me, because I get real nervous on bridges. Like, I just, I don't know why I I don't like bridges. Um, And we we have to go over the Mackinac Bridge in Michigan on occasion, and really don't like that bridge i just there's something about to me that just seems unnatural um it was kind of like when i was in the army and they made us parachute the first time and i pretty much refused to and the drill sergeant screaming at me what is your problem with parachuting and i was like it just seems unnatural to jump out of a perfectly good airplane you know <laughs> like, like well you need to jump and i was like look if god had intended me to fly he'd have put wings on my ass okay like, why did you yeah. sign up for this job uh trust yeah. me nowhere in the job description when i signed up for this <laughs> did it say anything about jumping out of an airplane i would have uh, done something different well, what made you think you didn't jump out of a plane? That's your job. Dude, I'm a Patriot Missile Systems operator. There's nothing. <laughs> yeah. What part of a, running a Patriot Missile System requires me to jump out of a damn plane? Am I going to strap one to my back and, like, hand deliver it like jihad or something? Cause, yeah. You know? <laughs> like, when I was told I'm going to be sitting in this tin can on the back of a semi firing uh. these things at people. So, I jumped out of a plane. Yeah, I, I don't know. know. Well, how do you think you're going to get to the places those go? Kind of uh, hope my ass would ride in a truck along with the missile, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize we were going to be parachuting into Iraq or someplace, you know? Uh, they want you to know just for good knowledge. Yeah. Trust me when uh, I say 
this is useless knowledge because I promise yeah. you when I get home, I am never jumping out of another plane. <laughs> and I have never jumped out of another plane in 30 years. I have, you know, That's my buddy is like, let's go skydiving. No. Nope. Hard pass. <laughs> Hard pass. <laughs> you know, zero consideration. I can comfortably tell you, no. <laughs> Yeah, I get a little funny going over bridges as well, you know. Yeah. The other, I get, and I get a little more funny when I got to drive through the Midtown Tunnel. I never, I myself, I've never done you know that. I've never, I've never did the tunnels. Like I just, yeah. I, uh, I say, to, I say to myself, you know what? The bridge collapses. I hit the water. I might have some way to survive. So a friend of mine, growing up in Canarsie, he went to California to stuntman school. Oh wow! So now my now, actually, he was Mike of the Ray Thomas. He was the drummer. Okay. So, right. So now he comes back from stuntman school, and I'm sitting in his kitchen, and his head's on fire. And I said, Mike, what's going on? Because I'm just practicing my stunt. So now he's the president of the East Coast Stuntmen's Association. He does all the soprano stuff. And he says, Raymond, if your car ever falls in the water, you got two choices to get out. I said, what's that, Mike? He goes, as it's floating on top, you got to get out immediately. Or you got to make sure the windows are closed and don't get out till it hits the bottom. I said, why not? He goes, because as soon as you try to get out, the pressure of the water and the car going up is going to just slam you against the top of the ceiling and you're going to get stuck. And oh, that's good to know. But at least a tunnel, something happens in a tunnel, it's over. Yeah. I I always love to joke it. Yeah. And you've probably heard it in 50 million variations of, you know, what did. Um, well, the thing we had to do in army training, we had to repel. Yeah. The drill sergeants are like, if your rope comes undone, if your gear comes undone, uh, this is how you survive the fall. Well, you know, it's not the fall that kills you. It's the sudden at the bottom. (laughs) And the drill sergeant's like, don't be a smart ass, private. I'm like, look, you know, if I fall off a 150 foot cliff, Falling off the cliff isn't going to kill me. Slamming into the rocks at the bottom. That's, you know, not a lot you can teach me about slamming into the rocks at 100 miles an hour that's going to really save my life much, you know. Um, It's survivable. Okay, Uh, if you say so. Let's uh, tell you what. Let's not ever find out because I, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Again, I'm a flatlander. Like, look, just put my ass on level ground and leave me alone. Um, yeah. Not below ground, not above ground. Just nice, level, flat streets. Um, That's good stuff. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, man. Um, this is the Noise Report. I'm the Music God. This is Roy. This is Ray, not Roy. <laughs> Can't read my own notes. Um, yeah. Check his music out. Uh, find it, tell them you heard it on the noise report. And uh, we're going to wrap this up with the usual message of be well, treat each other with kindness. Um, so much craziness and hatred in the world. Don't be a contributing factor to that. Uh, a little smile, a handshake, or just going out of your way a little bit, uh, helping someone could really change a person's trajectory and not just for their day, but maybe their whole life. Um, you never know. So, uh, uh, in the words of Bill and Ted, B 
be excellent to each other. <laughs> right, yeah. And with that said, we're out of here.